you have your Bibles, you can uh, open to Genesis chapter 11. My name is Joel. I'm one of the pastors here. I'm not the senior pastor, uh, but one of the pastors here, and I get to preach to you this morning. We've been going through Genesis, and uh, we are in Genesis 11 today. And if you've been here and you're thinking, why aren't we in 10? We should be in 10. Esteban, Lord willing, will be in 10 next week. Uh, but we are in 11 today, so please open your Bibles there. Uh, chapter 11, I don't have a lot of time, so I'm going to speak a little fast, okay? So if you're wondering why is he speaking a little fast, because we have baptisms to get to, all right? <clears throat> chapter 11, though, is relatively, it's relatively famous as far as chapters in Genesis go. Uh, there's a lot that happens, especially in the first nine verses. It's the, the story of Babel, the Tower of Babel, if you are familiar with your Bible. And uh, it seems like maybe an odd story, and maybe you've read it, and you've read it just sort of like a history lesson. Um, but we'll see in a moment, it's much more than that, and it can tell us not only a lot about mankind, but about ourselves, too. So let's look at chapter 11, starting in verse 1. It says, Now the whole earth had one language and the same words. Stop right there. Immediately, we run into an issue in this first verse. If you've ever read through Genesis, you've read it straight through, uh, you get to verse, you get to chapter 11, and you read verse 1, and you think, wait, didn't I just read in chapter 10 that people had their own languages? But now it says, now the whole earth had one language and the same words. You know, if you look back in chapter 10, in verse 5, everyone according to his own language. Verse 20, the sons of Ham, according to their family, according to their languages. Verse 31, Shem, according to their family, according to their languages. And then, literally two verses later, Moses says, now the whole earth used the same language and the same words. And you're kind of like, what is going on? Surely he knows that he just wrote that they had their own languages. Moses isn't stupid. He didn't write this and forget two sentences later. But it is an odd thing to read when you've just read chapter 10. <clears throat> but it isn't all that confusing because there are a few places in Genesis where Moses does something similar. He states what happened, and then he steps back and tells you how. Okay? And that's exactly what's happened. Chapter 10, Moses states what's happened. Chapter 11, we're going back now in time. He's going to share how. Okay? So don't let that hang you up. But now that we know that, let's begin back in verse 1. Now the whole earth had one language and the same words. And as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. And they said to one another, Come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bit bitumen for mortar. And they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its tops in the heavens, and let us make a name for ourselves. Lest we be dispersed over the whole face of the whole, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. So verse four now is a complete disregard and deliberate disobedience to what God has commanded Noah in Genesis nine chapter one. Excuse me, Genesis nine verse one. They were told, Noah was told that they should fill the earth. He said, "Let fill the earth, multiply, be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth." That's the command of God in Genesis nine. But here they're saying, you know, let us build a city and make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the whole face of the whole earth. 
They were commanded by God to be fruitful for the glory of God and to fill the whole earth for the glory of God. But here, they're not concerned at all about that. They're concerned about their own glory and staying together in a city. They're supposed to go out, fill the earth. No, we're building a city is what they say. So verse 4 is a key verse in this chapter. And the people there have four goals. One, they want to build a city. Two, they're going to build a tower with its tops up in the heavens. Three, they're going to make a name for themselves. Four, they're not going to be dispersed over the whole earth. Now those things correlate to one another. If they can make a city, they won't have to be dispersed. They can have walls, they can have an army, they can protection, everything they need, they don't need to be dispersed. And if they build a tower to the heavens, they can make a name for themselves to show off their glory and their greatness. So this building a tower and building a city, those are the outward expressions of what's going on in their hearts. Building a city and a tower to the heavens is the outward expression of their sin. And so I want to make a comment of what exactly these sins are. What exactly are the sins that are going on here? Because this story is much less of a history story. But these sins exist in everybody here. These sins in Genesis 11 are not someone else's sins from a long time ago. There are sins still today. And it's important that you see that they're your sins. And they're not just your past sins. So if you're a Christian here, they're not just your past sins, like you used to do that. You know, you used to live like this. They're still alive in you today, as we'll see. The sins present in Genesis 11 are the sin of loving human praise, the pride that comes with that. Every person in this room struggles with loving human praise. No one escapes that. It may not look the same for everybody because of different personalities. We're not the same in every way. But every person wants to be approved of. We want a good name for ourselves so that people will like us and will approve us. No one here likes being disapproved of. And the other sin is their love of security. They want to be secure Let's build a city. Let's protect ourselves so we don't have to be dispersed. We don't have to obey God. A city sounds way better. And we struggle with, the love, with our love of security. And it takes on different forms, as we'll talk about in just a moment. But let me step back and talk about the first sin. I made the claim that we all love human praise. We want human praise. We want people to praise us, not God. We want to make a name for ourselves. We saw that clearly in Josh's testimony. That's why we had Josh share, because he's a great example. Right? It's a great example. He was going to move to a big city, be a big shot, and everybody in his family and his small town that he grew up in was going to look at him and see how great he was, how high he had built his tower up to the heavens. And I love Josh's testimony because it's clear that he's repented in significant ways from his desire to make a name for himself. But what can happen... When you think about Josh's testimony, is you think, well, well, Josh repented of that, and now he no longer struggles with this in any way. 
Okay? And you think, well, I, and maybe you think about your life. You think, yeah, I used to be like that too. And you're tempted to think, I don't struggle with that anymore. But that is a foolish way to think about your sin. Yes, and amen. You can repent and be changed by the Holy Spirit. That's clear from Josh's story. But church, don't forget what Josh, don't forget, excuse me, what God says in Genesis 6-5. He says, The Lord saw the wickedness of man was great on the earth, and every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And then after the flood, in 8:21, for the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. This is true about you, church. Yes, for many of you, God has saved you, and he's placed his Holy Spirit in you. And yes, God's grace teaches you in very real ways to train you to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, godly lives. All of that is true, but you still are a son of Adam. You still have a flesh that wages war with your soul. And I honestly, I know it sounds like I'm being a Debbie Downer here, talking about this and being a pessimist. But if you'll be honest about that, it actually is incredibly freeing when you're just honest about who you are. It actually frees you up to come and receive the grace of God when you sin because you're not surprised by the fact that sin still exists in your life. You've been a, you're a Christian, maybe. You've been saved by God and His grace but you're still a Christian that still struggles with sin. Everybody in this room. You still have a flesh that desires sin. You still have a part of your heart that has evil intentions. And so, yes, you may have repented in some ways of making a name for yourself. You used to be greedy. You used to only think about yourself. But then you repented. You became a Christian. You started being generous to God and his church. Instead of building your own kingdom with your own wealth, you know, whatever example might fit you, but we all still struggle with wanting to make a name for ourselves. You might be thinking, I don't know how that's true of me. You keep saying that's true of me, I don't know if that's true of me. I don't know. I can't think of any ways. Well, let me try to help you. Parents, you want people to see you as the parenting guru with all the answers. You want your kids to behave in such a way so people will see you as wonderful parents. Maybe you're tempted by that. You want to make sure that people see your generosity so that they're impressed by you. For college students, this can be true of any of us, but it was especially true of me in college, and I still see it, especially in younger people. You want to be respected by your peers. So you make sure to present your faith in such a way that your uh, friends that hate God, they, they won't hate you, they won't think that you're a weirdo, and so you just kind of, the things that you decide to say or present to them, it's very particular. I remember when I was in college, my cousin asked me how I felt about homosexuality. And I gave this long, long answer because I, was, I didn't want him to think that I was some crazy nut job. 
So I gave this, and it was just a terrible answer. It looked like an idiot, but the whole point was I didn't care about honoring God about anything. I just wanted him to think that I was still pretty cool. Or on the flip side, maybe you're so brash about your faith and you want people to praise you for your zeal. You're not concerned about being kind and gentle to others. You want people to know you're the super serious Christian. You evangelize, but it's partly because you want other Christians to praise your spirituality. Now let me stop for a moment and give some more clarity, lest we just move on into another ditch. Now what I'm suggesting here is not that these things are the only motive in your heart, okay? So don't think like, oh, so let me use this example. Rarely are our motives 100% in one thing. Think about, think about this. Take the evangelism example. Someone might have a genuine and wonderful desire to see people saved, and so they evangelize. But then at times, they're tempted to bring up that story about their evangelism, not to give God glory, but so people will praise them. Look how serious they are. Now, that doesn't mean that anytime someone brings up a story about evangelism, that they're doing it for their own praise. Or the next time that Kevin sends a text to the men asking for us to pray for somebody who he shared the gospel with, that you need to sit there and kind of wonder, like, what's his motive in saying this? Okay? The point, don't be dumb about this. Focus on your, you and your sin. I'm confident I'm not the only person in this room who has brought up a story in a conversation so other people can see how awesome I am. You've all done it. And even when you do something in secret, but maybe somebody finds out and they honor you about it, is there not a temptation in your heart that kind of wants to take the praise for that? Like, I'm pretty awesome. I know this is true. Not only of myself, but many in this room. And so when I'm giving examples, I'm not saying that the motivations for a parent, for example, you know, they, they just want their kids to obey just so their peers will think they're a great parent. But there's subtlety in our hearts that want this praise from others. And the point I'm making is this. Can you acknowledge that these things are true of yourself, that you love human praise? Because you, if you can be honest about that, when you see it in small ways or in big ways, you won't be shocked and you can repent of it, however big or small. You can ask God to forgive you and to make your motives pure. But maybe you're still struggling. So here are just a few other ways. A church might seek the praise of men. They can't be a simple church. They have to be a great and amazing church before their city or compared to other churches. Or maybe the opposite side, a church prides itself on being small because they take serious the things of God. Or your good grades are not because you're working hard to honor God, but so you can impress your parents or classmates or get a great job to make a name for yourself. It shows up in your hobbies, in the houses that we decide to buy, and the vacations we choose. Social media can be wonderful, but does not Satan love to tempt us on social media with this very thing? 
look how wonderful my life is, or how smart I am, or how amazing my family is. I'm not against social media, but I am warning you, be careful about your heart on it. When you cover, covet what others have, it's often because you want what they have so people will think that you're great. It could go on for another hour giving examples, but hopefully you can think of at least a few ways that you want to make a name for yourself and you love the praise of others. But, let's, but be honest about it and confess it when you see it. Don't be shocked by it. But we also see the love of security at work in, this, in these verses. They wanted to build a city together so they could be safe and not have to disperse. How does that work? Well, we be careful in your parenting of your kids that you don't teach them to love security. I'm not saying be foolish with your kids. But if you make them so precious and you covet security, you will teach them to do the same. Some parents are so afraid that their kids are going to sin that they helicopter parents, they helicopter you know, parent around their kids all the time, but they never train their kids. They just keep them from not doing any sin to keep them secure. They're never allowed to play with neighbor kids because they may see a kid's sin. Or maybe you're worried about your grades or your schedule or your finances, so much so that it prevents you from actually loving people. You can't attend church because you need to study. You can't do dinner with someone in church because it'll mess up your family's schedule. So you're so worried. Maybe you're so worried about having plenty of money in the bank that you can never be generous with your wife, you can never be generous with your kids, with anybody else. Or you never confess your sins to others because you're terrified of what it might mean for your reputation. We're all tempted in different ways to love security. And again, the point is just to acknowledge it and repent when it pops up. No pastor or elder in our church is shocked when we see this thing, when we see these things in people's lives. We see them in our own lives. We know they exist. And what I'm pleading with you today is just to admit it to yourself and to God. These sins have been true throughout history, and they're true today. But let's look at verse 5. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of man had built. I love, I love that God's word says that he came down to see the city and the tower. Because here, the men have worked together to try to build this tower that reaches up to the heavens to make a name for themselves. They build it up to heaven, but then God says, ah, I still have to come down. It didn't reach him. It wasn't even close. He couldn't see it from heaven. He had to come down. Well, I know he could see it from heaven, but you get the point. It's an ironic reminder that all human efforts to make a name for yourself and accomplish something great to be remembered by so people remember you and give glory to you, it's utter foolishness. It's worthless. It's a worthless way to live your life because no matter how tall you build the tower or how high you climb in this life, you're still not going to reach the greatness that you're seeking. You're still not going to reach heaven. 
at least in the sense that it compares to God. God will still have to come down from his high throne to see anything done here on earth. It does not compare to him. And God reminds us of this in verse 5. So you get the sense from verse 5 and the irony of this statement that it's not going to go well. We see that in verse 6, starting. And the Lord said, Behold, they are one people, and they have all one language. And this is only the beginning of what they will do. And nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. Come, let us go down, and there confuse their language, so that they may not, made, so that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord dispersed them from there over the, all the face of the earth, and they left off building the city. Therefore its name was called Babel, because the Lord confused the language of all the earth, and from there the Lord dispersed them over the face of the earth. Now remember, I already read Genesis 8, 21. And when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man. For the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I ever again strike down every living creature as I have done. And so God has made a promise to not destroy everyone. But it doesn't change the fact that he knows man's heart and what it's capable of. And that's why when he comes down to see the city and the tower, he says, behold, they are one people, they have one language, and this is only the beginning of what they will do. And nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. God knows what man is capable of. He knows how bad it could be. And so what he does is a mercy to man. He doesn't let them go ahead with their plans. And instead, he restrains evil by doing what he does in verse 7. Come, let us go and confuse their language so that they may not understand one another's speech. This is the origin story of where different people and different languages come from. It's act, it was actually God who came down and said, these people are going to do some terrible things. And to prevent that, I will confuse their language and I will make it so they cannot even communicate with one another. And if you know your story, if you know your Bible, excuse me, the name given to it, Babel, this points to what will happen in the future. In, Reve in Revelation 17.5, Babylon the Great, the whore of Babylon who gets drunk on the blood of God's people, and the man of lawlessness, lawlessness in 2 Thessalonians, and I wish there was time to go through all that, but it'll have to be for another sermon. But for now, that time will come. But for now, God is restraining the evil of man and Satan by confusing their language. And this idea of God being merciful to his people and them rebelling against God is a constant theme throughout Scripture, especially in the Old Testament. God gives Noah, God saves Noah and his family. He could have wiped out all mankind and been done with them. Instead, he preserved the people and he gave them a wonderful mandate to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. And instead of obeying him, the people quickly started building a city and a tower for themselves. And yet, if you know Genesis 12, you see God be gracious again to Abram. But then in 12, you still see Abram struggle to trust God when they head to Egypt. And this happens constantly through Israel's history. God is merciful, He saves them out of Egypt, they complain in the desert. 
promised land, promises them a land, but then they go after other gods and disobey him. Over and over and over, this pattern continues of what we're seeing here in Genesis 11. And though this is only the beginning of man's disobedience, it won't be a unique problem to man or to us. Man tries to reach God by building a tower to him. Man wants immortality like God has, and he's going to try to get it for himself. He's going to reach God. He wants to be God. And God has every right to destroy his opponents who think that they can sit on his throne. Man tries to build a tower, and he reminds them, I have to come down to see that. He would have every right to destroy them. He would have every right to destroy us for our tower building in our lives where we try to make a name for ourselves and steal the glory that belongs to him. And yet, instead of destroying them, he's merciful and confuses their language and disperses them. And we know, since we have the whole revelation of Scripture, that eventually God the Son will come down himself and he will make a way for us to be with God. He will bring us to God, not us getting to God. Not by us climbing up to him, but God coming down to us. By Jesus obeying and fulfilling the law in a way that no man has ever done or ever could do, then dying on the cross in your place to pay the penalty and the price that you should have to pay. And this is what we remember and celebrate during baptism. Even though we tried to make our way to God and steal his glory. God mercifully came to bring us to him. But he didn't bring us to steal his glory, but to live for it and to enjoy his glory and to worship him as we originally were created to do. And so church, when you see your sins of pride and ambition and seeking to make a name for yourself and your love of security, don't be shocked by it common thing that man has dealt with throughout history. Don't be surprised that, sins, that these sins still live in you, but confess them to God who will be happy to forgive you because of what he's done in Christ. So you can stop building a tower for yourself, stop living for your own glory, and live for God's. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you that you would send your son for us. Father, we are just like the people in Genesis 11 in so many ways. And Father, you know these things. And instead of dealing with us harshly, you've been very kind to us. So kind, in fact, that you would send your son to leave heaven and come down and die in our place. Father, thank you for this. Father, this is our only hope in life and death. Help us repent of our sins as we see it. Thank you for your kindness and your mercy to walk with us even as we fumble about. We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to sing one more song.